Hey, listeners, before we get started, if you're enjoying these episodes, you can actually check them out on YouTube in full video. You can just search Honest Ecommerce and you'll get pulled right to our channel. Make sure you subscribe and ring the bell for all the updates. The reality is failure is not just um, a bug, it's a feature of getting to where you want to get. Welcome to Honest Ecommerce, a podcast dedicated to cutting through the BS and finding actionable advice for online store owners. I'm your host, Chase Clymer, and I believe running a direct-to-consumer brand does not have to be complicated or a guessing game. On this podcast, we interview founders and experts who are putting in the work and creating real results. I also share my own insights from running our top Shopify consultancy, Electric Eye. We cut the fluff in favor of facts to help you grow your e-commerce business. Let's get on with the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Honest Commerce. I'm your host, Chase Clymer. And today, I'm welcoming the show Mike Beckham. Mike is the co-founder and chief executive officer of Simple Modern, a leading producer of premium drinkware and lifestyle products. Welcome to the show, Mike. Hey, thanks for having me, Chase. Absolutely. So let's just dive on in here. Let's talk about uh, what brought you to the world of e-commerce. How did you get into this game? Yeah, so super atypical arc. Uh, I was a finance guy in college when I graduated. For a number of different reasons, I actually uh, joined a nonprofit right out of college. I thought I'd do it for a year and then go work in the business world. And one year turned into two, turned into 10. And so when I got to be 30, uh, I was like, well, I guess I'm not going to do anything in the business world. But I really love being in the nonprofit world. I have a younger brother. He's a couple of years younger than I am. And he had started an affiliate marketing company. So this is like 2007, 2008. He'd done pretty well. Like it was kind of the Wild West back then. Facebook was kind of just starting to, to learn how to monetize its platform. Google was still, you know, fairly early on. Uh, and he'd done really well on affiliate marketing. They want to start kind of a, a, a larger company. So anyway, we had this idea. It was like an auction website idea. And he approached me and just said, Hey, would you, you know, would you be willing to do this with me as, you know, kind of like on the side? I said, sure. I helped him recruit uh, a couple of other executives. And uh, we launched that business in October of uh, 2009. By November 2010, it was, an, you know, it was just an online auction, basically. By November 2010, so 13 months in, uh, we were having million-dollar revenue days. So we, you know, nobody really had any clue of how you know, abnormal or absurd that was. I was the oldest person associated with the company. I was 31. I wasn't even full-time. You know, like, I'm doing this as like a nights and weekends thing. And... Uh, it's a bunch of you know people under 35, uh, and and uh, the, it's kind of like the inmates running the asylum. So uh, over the next couple of years, my wife and I got pregnant with our first kid, and I just realized I was I was doing too much. I was I was kind of uh, riding multiple horses and had to kind of pick one. So decided to move into the for profit world, uh, which will be relevant and how I think about you know simple modern and our mission and all of that. But over the next few years, we did uh, probably uh, $1.1, $1.2 billion in revenue with that company over a six, seven-year period. Um, so it, it was pretty wild. We had a ton of experience in all of the blocking and tackling of e-commerce. Um, you know, if you Outside of working for Amazon, we had this small group of people randomly in Oklahoma that had about as much experience with e-commerce uh, as you would find anywhere. We started a few more businesses, a couple of them were huge failures, a couple of them were marginally successful. But around 2015 is when uh, we really started to realize what an opportunity there was selling on Amazon. We'd been kind of competing with Amazon, uh, but it was an opportunity. There was an opportunity to sell on Amazon, and we were kind of tired of, of competing with Amazon 
it was kind of obvious that they were going to win in the e-commerce space. So uh, I helped my brother start one more company. And then a couple of guys that had worked with me approached me and said, hey, would you like to start something? Uh, And honestly, you know, a lot of people will ask Chase, like, how'd you get the idea for your product? For us, it didn't really start with a a product idea. It started more with these are guys I really want to spend time with and I enjoy. Uh, I I want to be selling online. We had a ton of online e-commerce experience. We want to sell really high quality products. And we knew we wanted Amazon to be our first sales channel. And that was it. That's, That's kind of the extent. Uh, and that's what turned into Simple Modern. So we didn't sell our first water bottle until about March of 2016. So at this point, we're like about six years in. Uh, but I, I guess I've been in the e-commerce world now for about 13 years, and I've kind of done a little bit of everything, uh, all the way from you know D to C to selling into mass retail and selling on Amazon. We've sold both as a marketplace vendor and directly with, with Amazon. So we've kind of done uh, a little bit of everything over the last 13 years. Absolutely. It's a wild ride with a lot of sales. So uh, obviously, yes. you got to gotta feel blessed in that regard uh, and to cut your teeth. And uh, I think recognizing uh, recognizing that you know Amazon might win this fight back then might have been a, a great choice to make with you and, and you and the team. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in, in retrospect, it was kind of crazy to be fighting them for all those years. But, you know, it's hard to understand today how in 2008, 2009, it really felt like there was going to be this incredibly diverse e-commerce ecosystem. And then from that period to like 2015, it felt like it collapsed all the way down to almost a monopoly. You know, 2020, COVID and and the, the pandemic I think really expanded the ecosystem quite a bit. Obviously, there have been a lot of challenges over the last couple of years, whether it's logistics or, or tariffs, um, you know, CPMs going up, uh, the iOS uh, 14 update. There's been a lot of really challenging things. So I think one of the things that's the most interesting about the last two or three years is we're in a, a period of real disruption. Amazon is still the 800-pound gorilla. But over the last two or three years, you've seen some real success stories that haven't been on Amazon. So I'm definitely really curious to see uh, which of those are sustainable. And then I think the other kind of theme that I see these days is omni-channel. I I just really don't know how you run a brand that's not omni-channel. Like I just think it's it's very it's increasingly difficult to make the economics work when you're a pure play D to C or you're a pure play Amazon. Like you really want to be building a brand and brand equity and getting that benefit across several sales channels. Um, so I'm always fascinated by people that are able to make it work. But it seems like the winners that I'm seeing, especially like in consumer packaged goods, are people that are able to build this brand through leveraging a bunch of different channels. Absolutely. Those are definitely the ones that I think that uh, kind of penetrate the 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 kind of your home and it's it's a brand, you know, when they say like a household name, like those are the ones that yeah. are, I definitely get there, especially some of the newcomers to the space now that that are out there. You know, one that comes into mind is like Dollar Shave Club started DTC and then now they have yep. probably one of the biggest in-cap deals that Target I've ever seen. Mine is just full of that junk. Um, so yeah. it's, just, it's just wild to see these uh, newer business models then kind of go full circle back to a more traditional model. Yeah, it's it's kind of fascinating if you think about it, like, Originally, the value proposition of D2C was supposed to be you're going to cut out the middleman of the retailer 
and all of the kind of profits and costs associated with that. And so you're going to be able to offer customers the superior kind of uh, offering, right, from a cost perspective or value perspective or whatever. Uh, and then what happened is the retailer came out and Facebook and Google got inserted in. And so you've just got kind of a different toll booth that's between you and the customer than the retailer. And so, uh, you know, anytime there's you're dependent on a toll booth between you and the customer, it's very difficult to have a profitable business. What you really have to do is build the kind of relationship with customers that regardless of where they buy your product, they want to buy your product. And uh, so anyway, I, you know, I was telling somebody today that I view it uh, not in an adversarial way, but like the job of these big sales channels, the job of Facebook and Google is for you to be dependent on them uh, and you're interchangeable in their eyes. In their eyes, you know, they can swap you out for somebody else, but for you, you have to have them. And so part of running a brand, I think, is making yourself indispensable, making it where you can't be commoditized and where there's not a substitute where people are saying like, yeah, I want to buy a simple modern water bottle. And if you don't have it, I'm going to buy it somewhere else. Um, or I'm, I care about this brand enough that I'm going to organically come to the website. Now saying it's one thing, actually pulling it off, like that's the tough part. Right. And I, I think that there's this, this phrase that I've heard before that I think is a good description. Uh, it's called escape velocity. That basically when a brand reaches escape velocity, it's when it kind of hits that tipping point that you're talking about, the kind of household name. And so if you think about like a space shuttle, you think about how much gravitational pull there is on a space shuttle when it's trying to launch. I mean, it takes like those engines produce just enormous amounts of thrust to get that thing off the ground. And it's so much energy and so much force to get it going. But at a certain point, if it gets to a certain layer, past a certain layer of the atmosphere, all of a sudden that gravity is not pulling it down as much. And all of a sudden it's it's smooth sailing. And that's the way I, I think I've experienced it as a consumer, a consumer brand is that in the early days, it's so hard to get anybody to take you seriously or to care about your product. But you can hit this tipping point where all of a sudden not only do people know who you are, but people are saying, this is what I want to buy. And then all of a sudden, like operationally, it, it's really kind of almost like this total paradigm shift, how you sell, how you think about customer acquisition, how you think about the products, you know, and your pricing, all of that stuff kind of gets restructured once you can reach that point, if you can get there. Oh, absolutely. So uh, there was two things that I, I made notes over here that I wanted to bring up from, uh, from the conversation thus far. Yeah. First one being is uh, you, you said something earlier that I hadn't thought about in the longest time, which was the idea that the internet was going to get rid of the middleman. And it was kind of the concept of like all the old furniture stores or mattress stores where you're going factory direct. Yeah. And that was part of their value prop. And it's, and then you said that kind of just went away and I hadn't thought about it that hard. I was like, that's not a value prop I see anywhere with any modern brand that's starting D to C because it, that isn't a differentiator anymore. And it's not going to set you apart from everyone else because it's kind of what everybody else is doing. So I just thought that was fascinating. And I, and I, I like that yeah. you brought it up because it's a good good fodder to think on. Well, and it's it's a great question, Chase. Like, we should constantly be asking the question of like, what is the unique value that I'm driving? If my company went away, if the market, you know, if, if I wasn't in the market, like, uh, what would people be missing? And, you know, it's easy to a ask a question of like, how do I get more sales? It's harder to answer that question of like, why am I 
indispensable to the market and what's the value that I'm creating. But long-term, that's where the safety is, right? Mm -hmm. It's when you're actually meeting a need for the market uh, that if you're not there, nobody else is going to meet. So I think to your point, there's a lot of different ways we can meet that need. Like obviously sometimes, you know, Walmart's done a great job of meeting the like low price. Like that's what they're going to do. They're going to drive those price or dollar general or whatever. And like you can be really successful doing that. I think the reality is when you sell digitally, rarely uh, is that going to be your value proposition. The cost of shipping and just other things, it's difficult to really lead on price. One of the things you can lead on, and this is where I think like, you know, from a D2C perspective, the way that we think about our D2C strategy with Simple Modern is you can lead on selection, you can lead on experience, you can lead on personalization, you can lead on bundling. Like these are these are kind of vectors where you can offer better value. Like with with Walmart, there's certain things we can't do better than Walmart. Like we're if you're going to come and buy, you know, just like one water bottle from us, like we cannot compete with the economics of Walmart. We got to pay $7 to ship that thing to you. There's no way we can make, you know, the kind of the same value proposition. But if you're shopping for your kids back to school and you want to buy a backpack and a water bottle and a lunchbox and, you know, a pencil bag or whatever, well, all of a sudden we can actually offer a better value proposition than anybody else because our ability to bundle those things together and take advantage that I only have to pay $10 maybe to ship that whole thing to you. Uh, In the same way, like, you know, physical retail, even Amazon, you have limitations of how much you can show people and how it gets shown to them. But, you know, when you run D2C, you have the opportunity to give a much more uh, comprehensive and and customized shopping experience. And so to me, it feels like that's the way D2C is gone, is that we're going to offer a better shopping experience that, that prioritizes selection and prioritizes, you know, the experience. And people are willing to pay a premium for that uh, to, to some extent. Absolutely. I think that the uh, experience in general and, you know, uh, I'm going to get in a little bit here on the concept of like, uh, you brought up like low price as a, as kind of like a motivating factor for positioning and building a business. Um, and, and I agree with you 100%. If you're going direct consumer and price is going to be your differentiator, I think you're going to be one, you're going to lose, like your margin is not going to be there and you're not going to be profitable. But the exception right. I would say is if you have something in the way that you're constructing or, or patenting or whatever within your product and you can lead on price that you will destroy it on Amazon. You will be a you'll make a lot of money on Amazon. So yeah. there's this there's this idea that I've been playing around with in my head of where brands will win with like how they're positioning themselves. And so on the left-hand side, you've got a more commoditized product, a more price point focused product, something that would just absolutely just delivered on Amazon day in and day in. And then on the other hand, you've got something that's more brand driven, uh, values oriented and probably higher margin. And and that I think that the way that you win there is building a better customer experience, probably through an, uh, your own website where the experience is superior, the customer service is obviously through the roof, but you can't afford you those better margins. Now your velocities are going to be different. Um, but there's, those are two ways to play the game. Yeah. And you know, there's a way to marry them too. For us, what we're investing in right now is we've we've already invested about six million dollars this year. I think we'll invest eleven million in total this year. Um, probably you know north of a hundred million over the next seven or eight years is we're building out domestic manufacturing. 
And so if you can control the brand experience and people are willing to pay, you know, a mid-tier or a premium price point for your product, and you have the competency in the supply chain to be able to, to make it better, to be able to make it more efficiently, you know, uh, even one example of how you can use manufacturing ability is uh, this is this is kind of tactical, but it's it's practical. If you've grown an e-commerce business, especially in the last couple of years, you realize that one of the tensions is so much of your money gets tied up in inventory, right? And you got to carry six months of inventory or nine months of inventory just to make sure you stay in stock. When you have the ability to make your product, all of a sudden you don't have to keep you know these months of inventory because you can make it. And you can take that capital and put it to play in different ways. Like if you think about it, if you're a customer of mine, if I've got nine months of inventory or six months of inventory, it doesn't improve your life at all. It only improves your life if I'm in stock as opposed to out of stock, right? But if I'm able to offer four colors instead of one because I have leaner inventory, then that does benefit you as a customer. And so for us, we're making all this investment in domestic manufacturing. And one of the biggest things it's going to allow us to do is to just serve the customer better, not just on quality, not just like, okay, we're creating jobs locally and you know that things are ethically made, but also because I think in terms of like ornamentation and the amount of products that we're going to be able to offer, that's going to actually scale. We're going to be able to do a lot more interesting things. And we're going to be able to steal some of that money that's been sitting there in inventory that just sits and deploy it in all these other interesting ways that actually make our customers' lives better. So, uh, I, and that's one area that very few people are doing, but I think over the next, you know, 5, 10, 20 years, hopefully others follow our lead because it turns out that if you can vertically integrate that, that's how you make the unbelievable value proposition, right? If you're struggling with scaling your sales, maybe Electric Eye can help. Our team has helped our clients generate millions of dollars in additional revenue through our unique brand scaling framework. You can learn more about our agency at electriceye.io. That's E-L-E-C-T-R-I-C-E-Y-E dot I-O. Mesa is the easy to use answer for automating the everyday challenges of running a Shopify store. Find more aha moments when you're spending less time in the weeds and can focus on the bigger picture. With automations, you have all the power of code without the learning curve. You can easily customize how Shopify and your apps work with one-click integrations. From auto-tagging orders to sending order details to a Shopify customer database, Mesa connects your data where it's needed most. To put it quite simply, Mesa is a better way to work. So find your peace of mind and kick up your feet with a simplified workload to manage the everyday stress of running your Shopify store. Search for Mesa, that's M-E-S-A, in the Shopify app store and download the app today. Free plan available with a no-cost setup included. We've talked about this before on our podcast, but returns are an absolute hassle. They're often costly, time-consuming, and complicated, but there's a better way to handle returns. Our partner Loop helps Shopify brands deliver hassle-free return experiences. Their platform empowers shoppers to process their own returns, creating a better user experience for both you and your customers. Plus, they encourage exchanges over refunds. They make it a lot easier for shoppers to browse through your entire product catalog at the point of return. It's a true win-win. Loop is trusted by over 1,600 Shopify merchants from side hustles to enterprise-level brands like Patagonia, Brooklinen, and Chubby's. It's time to transform your returns into exchanges. Learn more at loopreturns.com slash honest. 
That's L-O-O-P-R-E-T-U-R-N-S dot com slash H-O-N-E-S-T. Getting an online business off the ground isn't easy. So if you find yourself working late, tackling a to-do list that's a mile long with your fifth cup of coffee by your side, remember, great email doesn't have to be complicated. That's what Klaviyo is for. It's the email and SMS platform built to help e-commerce brands earn more money by creating genuine customer relationships. Once you set up your free Klaviyo account, you can start sending beautiful branded messages in minutes thanks to drag and drop design templates and built-in guidance. And with e-commerce specific recommendations and insights, you can keep growing your business as you go. Get started with a free account at klaviyo.com slash honest. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O dot com slash H-O-N-E-S-T. It's fascinating co- talking to you. And, and I'll let everybody listening get know, we had one question when we started this interview and I'm enthralled. So I hope the listeners are, are enjoying it because I'm really enjoying this conversation. Mike. So you were talking about this, the time to cash flow. Or I don't know what the actual proper term is in e-commerce, but it's basically it's like what you're saying is this money sitting on my shelf is like you're taking a dollar bill out of your pocket, your your business bank and just setting it on a shelf anytime you're, you're holding inventory there. So the faster that you can yeah. uh, get that cash back in your pocket to redeploy elsewhere to grow the business is basically like I would say 300 level e-commerce. So like 100 level mm-hmm. e-commerce is where... And we're t- I'm using a college course anal- analogy, right? Yeah. But like 100 would be like you got to... You're finding product market fit. That's basically it. Where the heck are customers? What are they going to buy? How am I going to do this, right? Yeah, will they buy my stuff? Yeah. yeah. And that's zero to one, right? And I would even say like zero to one million is kind of where you're playing that game. Yeah. Now you move forward and you're going from like one to 10 million. Now you're in the scaling phase. It's right people on the bus and the right seat on the bus. There's those are two different problems to have. So, you know, you're scaling uh, and you're starting to now experience kind of the money management uh, or money yeah. magic, as uh, me and my business partner call it. Yeah, your unit economics start to matter. You're, yeah. It's not just can we sell stuff? It's like, hey, are we making appropriate margins? Does that give me enough for my overhead? Like you're, you start to understand. I agree. Yeah. Yep. And then, and then as you move into an eight-figure business, ten million dollars a year and plus, this, you know, your baby enterprise maybe or going wherever you want to call it enterprise doesn't matter. Anyways, at this point, you're starting to bring a lot of these things in-house. Um, so you're bringing key players in-house. You're probably using less agency partners for key roles. You're probably still using partners for random stuff. Um, but you're hiring really smart people. Uh, and you're starting to vertically integrate some of your stuff and how you can stretch your lead times on when do I got to pay bills and when b- bills get paid and how you can have that float in your business uh, separates people kind of getting to whatever the next level is after that. I totally agree. You know, so so we're at, we're about 110 million revenue this year. We think we'll be over 200 million next year. So we're at pretty significant scale. Just to give you an idea of like how significant this becomes at scale, just to support our growth for next year, we're probably going to have to add $20 million to the average inventory on hand on any given day. So like, I mean, just, just funding that growth, you got to find $20 million to fund that growth unless you're getting creative about your turns or how you're using inventory. But I, I, think, that, I think that you're right. I think that the two things about e-commerce that catch people off guard one is how much the financial engineering of your business matters yeah and that you you have to get good at it that like things like inventory turns aren't you know they're not vanity metrics they can be the difference between winning and losing and people will often get caught off guard by the fact that like i've got something i sell it at a good margin people want it why is my business not making any money 
right? Like how are all the numbers not working? Because on a basic level, it's like, I've got this thing. It cost me $5. People want to buy it for 20. Like I should be doing great, but I'm not. Why? You know, it doesn't emotionally make sense. The other thing I think that catches people off guard about e-commerce is the breadth of skills that you have to be good at. I mean, it's just, it's really crazy. Like you need to know some stuff about legal and you need to know about digital marketing and you need to know about packaging and you need to know about sourcing and you need to know about logistics and you need to know, you know, you need to know about web design and you need, you know, you just, it goes on and on and on that you have to have all these kind of different disparate areas of knowledge. And like you said, when you're in e-commerce, like when you're at kind of level two and level three e-commerce, you realize like just how diverse your, your skill set has to be uh, of your team in order to actually run a successful business. Now, the thing that's awesome about e-commerce is its scalability. And it just turns out that there's a lot of difficulty to get to that scalability. You know, at this point, I've been, I, I, I think I took stock of it. And I think out of the last 12 years, 13 years, I think nine or 10 of them, I've been growing a business at greater than 50% year over year. So, you know, my internal age is probably like 80 or something, you know, like um, it's like dog years, you know, startup years, e-commerce years are like dog years. Um, but I do think those are two things I've learned along the way that are counterintuitive about scaling. <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more that it, you get aged in this industry a little bit under this hat is a lot of gray hair. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, so we've been talking a lot about, I think, problems that might be a little bit ahead of some of the listeners. So let's bring it back down to some more tactical stuff for people that are just getting out in that journey. Say they're in that like 100 level or 200 level stuff. Do you remember anything yeah. from back in those days of any of the businesses, the various businesses that you built, like maybe mistakes that you want to point out and be like, hey, don't do this because I've done it for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think in the early days, uh, just a few practical things that I, I, you know, I teach entrepreneurship at OU. Here are some practical things. Like one is that you're willing to do everything. Like, you know, for your business to get to that uh, $10 million mark, you're going to, it is going to be built on your back, you know? And when you scale your team, eventually, if you do get there, it's really critical that you are great at the blocking and tackling of e-commerce because that actually helps you to hire the right people when you do start to replace yourself. And so uh, early on, I remember uh, that there's, I mean, there were a lot of late nights and a lot of me needing to have a growth mindset and a learning mindset because of all the different things I had to learn about. I think you trying to avoid making decisions that take you out of the game is the easiest way to describe it when you're in the earliest phases. You don't want to be making any bets where if they don't go well, it knocks you out of the game. So early on, it's not so much that you're trying to get to a certain kind of magnitude. It's more you're just trying to learn. And everything should be optimized around learning and just becoming as knowledgeable as you possibly can about what people want in the particular area of the world that you're in. I mean, there's no shortcuts, right? Like if I want to be great at selling hydration products, my internal mindset has to be that I want to know more about this industry. I want to know everything I possibly can about this industry. And whether it's publicly available data or data I can get from testing. And when you develop that mindset of a learner and you use that as the kind of mile marker, that's actually more helpful than revenue. Because sometimes... You know, we talk a lot about like I, I give this uh, illustration. 
Process versus results, inputs versus outputs. It's easy to be results or output focused. But the problem with that is that often the outputs don't necessarily match the inputs. You know what? You launched an e-commerce business in April of 2020. You thought you were a genius, right? It just looked like everything you did was right. You launch a business in July of 2021. It could feel like everything you did was wrong. You know, that's not because necessarily your decisions were good or bad. It's because of the context and the environment. So what you instead have to do is you have to approach things. Am I doing this with the, 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 the right process, regardless of results? And if you keep applying that mindset, that's actually what leads to successful things long term. Now, a lot of times that means you're going through the right process. You're doing the right test. You're having a learning mentality and it's not working. But the thing that I emphasize to people is even when you have kind of theories or hypotheses about, oh, I think this will get product market fit, or I think people will want this, and then you test it, and it doesn't go the way you expected. That's still progress because you now know more, right? Your next theory, your next iteration is going to get better. And so if you if you really, more than anything else, if you commit to learning, inevitably, I think that leads to success in some way. Because you become an expert in an area and the more knowledgeable and you eventually figure out how to monetize that in one way or another. But so that would be the first thing I'd say, or one of the things I'd say is that like, instead of having a results orientation, have a process orientation and more than anything else, have a learning kind of mindset. The other thing that I mentioned already that I would, I would have again is like, you know, what you need, need are you meeting? And I think a lot of times when people hear that, what they hear is, uh, especially in entrepreneurship, is like, oh, I need a new product or I need a different product that doesn't exist. Almost never, you know, almost never is that how companies are started. I bet 99% of successful, I don't know, 99 point whatever percent of successful companies are just an iteration on something that people already bought. It's just you're doing it in a different way that adds value to people's lives. And so it's it's actually interesting if as as e-commerce operators, as entrepreneurs, if we're putting our mindset and our, our mind focus towards, I want to learn and I want to create value for people. I want to solve problems that are already being solved in a little bit of a different or a better way. It's just so much easier to find that path, like you said, to, to like zero to one or, or one to 10 million. Um, because there are tons of problems that people have that don't have very good solutions in the market where an e-commerce solution could be better or there's e-commerce solutions, but it, you know, like I love the products where it's like, Hey, I'm a hair care product for African-American women that have really curly hair. Like this is a real problem for them and no product's been built for them. Right. So it's like hair care products isn't new, but this target market, I can hit this differently. And you hear stories like that all the time. And I love hearing stories like that because uh, I think that I think that that's what it's all about. So the other thing I would just say is I've been fortunate that a lot of things have gone well, but I would want everybody who hears this to hear me say a lot of stuff I've tried has not gone well. Like I think I've tried a lot more things that have gone poorly than have gone well. There's this uh, there's this guy at uh, I think it's Cal Berkeley, but he's done research basically on the most successful people, what makes them successful. And what he found is somewhat counterintuitive. It turns out like what makes Mozart Mozart, right? And, and what he basically found is the most successful people, the single most identifying fingerprint is how prolific they are. It's that they just take a ton of freaking swings. You know, that like 
if you actually look at Mozart, even at his peak, it's not like he got better through his career and wrote better symphonies. It's just that his peak, he just churned out more symphonies, right? And that some of those ended up being these classics. And the, the point that I make to students is you just, you have to be more scared of never hitting a home run than of striking out. Because by definition, like this stuff is hard and I have failed plenty of times. But when you have a mentality of if I ever want to really knock one over the center field fence, I'm going to have to have a lot of strikeouts to get there. It's actually healthy. And, and it sets our expectations where, whereas sometimes if you're on Twitter, you're listening to something like this, it can feel like other people are just more successful or other people have better, you know, have, have better luck than we do. Uh, the, the reality is failure is not just um, a bug. It's a feature of getting to where you want to get. Right. Absolutely. Oh, man, that, that was a lot of amazing advice. Uh, now, is there anything I didn't ask you uh, that you think would be worth sharing today? Yeah. So I'll, I'll give one more. When we started this company, I thought about going back into the nonprofit world or staying in the for-profit world. I, I stayed in the for-profit world. Our company's mission statement is we get, exist to give generously. And here's just my pitch. I think we're at a place in our, our country where there's actually, among young people, there's more negative sentiment about capitalism than ever before. And I think part of that is that we have seen business leaders where it's a very, it's almost exclusively shareholder driven and it's very selfish in nature. And that the companies that are going to win over the next 10, 20, 30 years are going to look a little bit different. They're going to be ones that are really focused on how do we improve the lives of everybody that comes in contact with the company, the employees, the, uh, the environment, the local community, the, the people we work with, like our suppliers or partners, the customer. And that's what we're really trying to build. And I try to be an advocate for thinking that way because two things. Number one, I think it'll lead to uh, more successful businesses. But number two, when you're 70, when you're 80, and you think about how you did spend the time that you had, you're going to be proud of it. And I use that as um, kind of a clarifying principle in my life of, you know, 40 years from now, am I going to care about this thing? And it's amazing how it helps me to sort through the things that don't matter and the things that do and to really think about the type of business I want to build. Absolutely. Now, Mike, uh, this might be a podcast where I don't think we talked much about the product at all, but let's give it a shout out. Okay. <laughs> Let people know like uh, what you guys are doing over there at Simple Modern and uh, where they should go to check out the product. Yeah, absolutely. So we sell uh, world-class insulated drinkware, and then we've also gotten into plastic and uh, and kids' products as well. You can check us out uh, at Amazon, Target, Walmart, our website, simplemodern.com, Sam's Club. We we not only do we have branded stuff that's fantastic, but uh, any of the sports like the NFL, NBA, NCAA, Disney, we've got amazing licensed product as well. Awesome. Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Chase. All right. I can't thank our guests enough for coming on the show and sharing their knowledge and journey with us. We've got a lot to think about and potentially add into our own business. You can find all the links in the show notes. Make sure you head over to honestecommerce.co to check out all of the other amazing content that we have. Make sure you subscribe, leave a review. And obviously, if you're thinking about growing your business, check out our agency at electriceye.io. Until next time.